0: Hi, I'm Fiona and I'm Max and welcome to this week's episode of Fly on the Wall. We have a great interview with Representative Jamie Raskin, who is a congressman from Maryland and was the lead impeachment manager during Trump's second impeachment.
1: Before we get started with the interview with Representative Raskin, make sure to follow us on social media at Fly on the Wall pod on Instagram, Facebook and Twitter. We also love hearing from you. So feel free to send a message to Wall at Georgetown.edu.
0: Let's get into the interview with Representative Raskin. So, Representative Raskin, thank you so much for being here. We're so excited to have you on the podcast. Um, to start off with, right now it seems like there are just a million reasons not to be in politics. The hyper-partisanship, the media frenzy, etc. So, simply put, why do you do it? Why do you stay in public life and public service at a time like this?
2: First of all, thank you for having me. I'm delighted to be with you, too. And I really appreciate the invitation. Um, well. I mean, I guess part of the answer for me would just be psychological. Um, You know, I grew up with like a a very great sense of public responsibility, which I suppose is to say guilt. (laughs) You know, uh, my dad used to say to us, when everything looks hopeless, you're the hope. Uh, And so, you know, I think he raised us, our parents raised us with the sense that It's when things look the worst that you need to be out there.
1: That was a great response. Thank you for that. In light of the January 6th events and the reality that some members of Congress entertained an attack on our democratic institution, how do you balance pushing for justice versus seeking unity or bipartisanship?
2: Well, I'm involved in the work of the January 6th Select Committee, and our job is to identify the truth about the events that took place on January 6th, the causes of those events, and then to make recommendations for how to fortify democratic institutions going forward against future coups and insurrections against the constitutional system that we have. So. We're not actually in the business of individual criminal justice. That belongs, of course, to the Department of Justice. And one of the things we're trying to rebuild in the aftermath of the disaster of the Trump administration is the respect of the political branches for the independence of the law enforcement function. So Trump liked to try to dictate to whoever his attorney general was who to prosecute and who not to prosecute. I mean, that's, utterly antithetical to the traditions of the country. And so we're trying to get back to saying that's a decision that belongs with Attorney General Garland. We will make available all of the facts and all of the evidence we have. But, you know, that's not up to us. Our job is to try to figure out how to um, strengthen democracy going forward. Um, And, you know, that is about renewing a sense of hope in the American Constitution and in our democracy. I mean, all over the world, democracy is under attack. All the autocrats and the dictators and the bullies and the tyrants and the kleptocrats have gotten together, and we know exactly who they are. It's Putin in Russia, who's pretty much the ringleader, uh, with his loyal sycophant Donald Trump in Mar-a-Lago, and Orbán in Hungary and Duterte in the Philippines, and Bolsonaro in Brazil, and President Xi in China in the... Homicidal crown prince of Saudi Arabia. And, you know, we know who's on that team. And the question is what are we going to do? Are we going to organize as the democracies to stand up for human rights and what it means to be a liberal democratic society? That's what's under attack by um, this new wave of right wing authoritarianism, racism, anti Semitism, fascism that's been set loose around the world.
0: And as you mentioned, you were an impeachment manager for the second impeachment of Donald Trump. And I want to zoom in on that role a little bit. So what was it like personally managing the second impeachment?
2: Um, Well, um, we had a remarkable team of impeachment managers. I was very proud to be um, leading a team of such remarkable lawyers and former prosecutors um, uh, like Stacy Plaskett, who actually had been my student at American University Washington College of Law, and former public defenders like David Cicilline of Rhode Island who had been at the Public Defender Service, Um, but just all of them great lawyers, and we had great teamwork, and it was not um, a bunch of people vying for individual attention. It was a group of lawyers getting together trying to figure out how to tell the best story to America about what happened. And I think uh, it showed in a very professional, insightful, and compelling presentation to the country, uh, which was a pretty sharp contrast to what was going on on the other side. Although I wouldn't blame the lawyers because Donald Trump had no case. The facts were completely against him. He had clearly incited the insurrection. He had tried to Form the mob, assemble the mob, inflame the mob, and then light the match to lead to the seizure, uh, the storming of the Capitol, and uh, the disruption of the counting of electoral college votes for the first time in American history. And they succeeded in doing that. All of it was in service of a parallel coup against the electoral college result. It was a failed coup because Mike Pence refused to go along with it. Um, and because of the the valor and the bravery of our officers and uh, our determination to go back in and count the electoral college votes but it very nearly succeeded. Um, So we think that all the evidence was against them. Uh, The constitutional law as we showed was against them. Um, They never were able to answer the question whether they thought it was indeed a high crime and misdemeanor to incite violent insurrection against the Union. you know we understood they didn't think that Trump did that, but they were never able to answer whether they thought it would be a crime if he did do that and Of course, you know he essentially bragged about what he did, and it's perfectly clear to anybody who watched the trial so it was frustrating at the end i mean we we got the most sweeping bipartisan result in the history of presidential impeachment trials. There have just been four of them, Andrew Johnson um, during the reconstruction period, and Bill Clinton for doing you know what and then uh, Trump won and Trump two, and we we had a 57 to 43 vote We fell just 10 votes short of convicting him, but we weren't able to I mean We we got all of the Democrats to vote for us seven Republicans from all over the country New England mid-Atlantic the South the Midwest the West Alaska uh, But alas it was not enough um, So Trump is still at large
1: That's a great answer. And something that we try to work on a lot here at Georgetown in general and with a lot of the political groups is bipartisanship. And we're just wondering, what does bipartisanship look like at a time when the electorate is so fiercely split over Trump, cultural issues, and even the validity of the democratic process? What does common ground look like when red and blue seem to live on opposite islands?
2: Well, first of all, um, I think it's important to talk about transpartisanship or multi-partisanship or non-partisanship, because there are millions of people who hate both of our parties, and lots of times a-, a lobbyist will show up and my often say, oh, I've got a great bipartisan bill for you, and usually they mean they want to buy the two parties and buy one and get the other for free, you know? So I- I'm not that taken with that language, but I think it's important to examine the question of partisanship. Um, you know i and I give two cheers for partisanship. Most people live a completely schizophrenic life on Capitol Hill about partisanship because they spend all their time in their party caucuses, they vote totally the party line, they toe the party line, and then they go on the floor and they denounce partisanship and that to a certain extent goes very ba- way back to the beginning of the country where the framers of the country of the of the constitution um, were opposed to what Madison called faction, and there's nothing in the Constitution about political parties, much less a two-party system, or two specific parties. Um, and you know, at their best, they denounced it, right? So, like Jefferson in his inaugural address in 1801, after uh, beating Adams, he said, "You know, we are all Republicans, we are all Federalists." And a lot of presidents have spoken like that. It's like Lincoln saying right before the Civil War you know, um, or during the Civil War, you know, we are not enemies, we are friends, we must not be enemies. Or Obama saying, we're not the red states of America or the blue states of America, we're the United States of America. But at the same time, all of those people, Jefferson, Lincoln, Obama, were fierce partisan actors. And that's just built into a democracy. Because when you have open democratic politics, it's pluralist in nature. People are going to form political parties. I mean, it happens on faculties. It happens, I'm sure, the student government. It happens, you know, wherever you form people together in a governance situation, they're going to form groups. So, you know, we should get off our high horse about just denouncing anything having to do with partisanship. Let's look at what the positive functions of parties are. They help to educate voters. They articulate programs um, and, you know, political... Agendas. Uh, they try to translate political agendas into uh, actual legislative programs and mandates once it's over. But the real thing, and the reason I say two cheers and not three cheers, is because um, the spirit, uh, you know, what Madison called the spirit of faction, the spirit of parties, can get out of hand. It can be very destructive of social cohesion. And you can also have two parties that try to operate as a conspiracy against everybody else and make it impossible for new parties to enter just in a classic kind of antitrust monopolistic way. Um, So I like to say that all of us who aspire and attain to public office um, should remember after the election's over and we fought like cats and dogs and that's great because if you don't have party competition what do you have? A one-party dictatorship, a one-party state. That's what Vladimir Putin wants. So partisanship is not the worst thing in the world. It's certainly not as bad as dictatorship and authoritarianism, right? So you can have some vigorous party contest. But once it's over, I think those of us who are in office have a responsibility to remember where the word party comes from. It's from the French word parti, which means a part. Our party is just part of the whole, and we have to try to speak for the whole as much as we can. And we know how to do that. I mean, if you come to uh, my district office out in beautiful Rockville, Maryland, where you live, um, and you got a problem with Social Security or Medicare or college loans or VA benefits, whatever it is, we go to work for you. And we never ask for one second, are you a Democrat, are you a Republican, are you green, independent, libertarian? No. It's enough for me that you are my constituent, you're a U.S. citizen, you have a right to the benefits of the government. And that's the mentality we've got to have when we go out there and legislate. And most certainly, it's the mentality we've got to have when we're dealing with a question of basic constitutional integrity, like an impeachment trial, where the senators have sworn not one, but two different oaths, One, to uphold and defend the Constitution against all enemies, foreign and domestic, and two, to render impartial justice. And what is impartial justice if it's not nonpartisan justice? And that's what it means. And so I guess I would say let's be strong political partisans to the extent that that's going to help us define different legislative ideas. Great. You know, put on your partisan cap, and then take it off.
0: In light of politicians not acting as constitutional agents, as you described, some citizens have lost trust in the government or feel like what happens in D.C. is conducted by faceless bureaucrats or theatrical politicians. So how do you humanize our political process?
2: Pessimism, cynicism, jadedness about the political system is very much a strategy today. You go back and read Christopher Wiley's book. He worked at Cambridge Analytica in 2016, and he wrote a whole book about how they were deliberately doing that. Putin and Steve Bannon and Donald Trump were trying to inject poison into the political bloodstream of America through the social media in order to... Well, energize the most unstable and reactionary elements of the society and then depress the hell out of everybody else. And they succeeded in doing it. So, if people tell me, oh, I'm burning out, this is exhausting, whatever, I say, congratulations, Steve Bannon and Donald Trump have just won because they want you to turn off and to say everything sucks with American politics and government. And then ha- they will happily take over the government for you. So, you've just helped them do their work. Okay, but the other thing I want to say about it is that democracy is always an unfinished product. It's always a work in progress. That's why we're always working for a more perfect union. So you can be part of that process, or you can go down the road with the authoritarians and the cultists at this point, because that's where it's at. I mean, they're, they're willing to have violent insurrections to overthrow our government, coups to overthrow our elections. They're willing to do that. And the question is whether the people who understand what's wrong with that are willing to stand up and fight for America.
1: Yeah, definitely. And uh, at this point of the interview, we're going to move to something we call the lightning round. This section basically includes some quick questions with some pretty quick answers. Um, and the first one we have for you, is, as we're all um, D.C. and most of the listeners are at Georgetown, um, since you're from Maryland and you're a local, what's the most underrated place to visit in the D.M.V. area?
2: Yeah, everybody's got to go check out the Lincoln Memorial. That's that's wild, and the the new African American Museum of you know history and art, and that, that's that's extraordinary. I would check that out, but I mean, I guess I'll reveal my secrets. I mean, I don't want too many people to go there, but. You guys got to check out Rock Creek Park. I mean, it's amazing. It's an absolute jewel. You know, don't tell too many people, but yeah, (laughs) they can check that out. Um, And come check out Maryland's beautiful 8th Congressional District, Montgomery County. You know, you've got definitely a -a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity over the next few weeks to go check out the Mormon Temple. You know, I'm sure when you were growing up, it looked like Oz to you. All the, all the kids think it's Oz, but I, I just went and toured it today. They've opened it for a few weeks, and they're giving people tours, so you can go see what's going on in there. Very mysterious. Um, but um, th- there's some amazing museums uh, in Montgomery County, including the Josiah Henson Museum, which is of... Um, uh, it was a... Well, it was basically like a little plantation in... Maryland, where Josiah Henson was enslaved, and he was also the head slave, so he sort of ran the whole thing, and he became the model for Harriet Beecher Stowe's uh, Uncle Tom and Uncle Tom's Cabin, Uh, and so you can go and see where he was before he uh, escaped to Canada. It's kind of a wild story. Check out Frederick County. Check out Carroll County. Come see Maryland. Washington, D.C. used to be part of it.
0: And what are your top book recommendations?
2: Well, um, let's see. There's a great book by my friend Fiona Hill that she's written um, that's called uh, There's Nothing for You Here. It's basically about economic and social opportunity in the UK, in the US, and in Russia. She's a Russia expert, and you may have seen her talking about Putin's filthy invasion of uh, Ukraine and his war crimes. Um, so that, that would be like a newer nonfiction book to check out, but I got to recommend my favorite book of all time by Judith Schlar called, um, Ordinary Vices. That'll change your life.
0: And we also know that you just came out with a book called Unthinkable, Trauma, Truth, and the Trials of American Democracy. So we want to recommend that to all of our listeners.
1: Yeah, and our final question for you in this round and overall would be, as a legal scholar and expert, what is your favorite constitutional amendment?
2: Mm. Well, the 14th Amendment just radically transformed the Constitution. I mean, it became a different Constitution. I mean, it really was the package of the Reconstruction Amendments. The 13th Amendment abolished slavery. The 14th Amendment established equal protection and due process um, against the states and against the federal government. And the 15th Amendment forbade race discrimination in voting Um, so it just doesn't it doesn't get more dramatic or sweeping than that but a majority of our amendments have been suffrage enlarging democracy deepening amendments Uh, the 13th 14th 15th the 17th of course shifted to direct election of senators from um, legislative selection of senators and 1913, the women's suffrage in the 19th Amendment in 1920. The 23rd Amendment gave people in DC the right to participate in presidential elections. The 24th Amendment banned poll taxes. The 26th Amendment lowered the voting age to 18. So the whole trajectory of American constitutional development is toward greater inclusion and participation by the people. And what we really need is a constitutional amendment guaranteeing and assuring everybody's right to vote and Real democratic process. That's what's under attack today. We don't have an affirmative universal right to vote, which is why you got millions of disenfranchised people, not just in DC and Puerto Rico, but uh, former felons in different states, and then people get disenfranchised through all the voter suppression tactics. So we need to put that into the Constitution, because right now we just have sort of a ragtag sequence of anti-discrimination Amendments like you can't discriminate on the basis of gender on the basis of race and so on and it doesn't quite get us there so I would I would say that but um, I love the provision in the Constitution that forbids titles of nobility to be granted by Congress and the most unsung but important provisions are those uh, banning the receipt of presents, emoluments office and titles from kings princes and foreign states of any kind whatever and uh, it's, I think, uh, the fault of the Democrats that we didn't impeach Donald Trump originally for turning the presidency into a money-making operation. Mm.
0: Well, we are so thankful to have you on the podcast. Um, this is wonderful, so thank you so much.
2: Yeah, thank you. Thank you for having me.
0: Thanks for tuning in to this week's episode of Fly on the Wall. Personally, I thought Representative Raskin's description of partisanship was super interesting, how it's not always as bad as we make it out to be. What about you, Matt?
1: I really enjoyed the interview and I really liked his lightning round answers and it makes me want to explore some of the places in the DMV a bit more.
0: Definitely, I would second his recommendation of Rock Creek Park. And we hope you enjoyed this episode as much as we did. Make sure to follow us on social media at Fly on the Wall Pod on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. As always, you can email us at flyonthewall at georgetown.edu.
1: See you next week.